0: Welcome to the Learner-Centered Spaces Podcast, where we empower and inspire ownership of learning, sponsored by Mastery Portfolio, hosted by Star Saxstein, Emma Chapetta, and Crystal Frommer. In each episode, we will bring you engaging conversations with a wide variety of educators both in and out of the classroom.
1: This podcast is created for educators who want to learn more about how to make the shift toward learner-centered spaces for their students, schools and
0: districts, or education at large. The Learner-Centered Spaces podcast is a proud member of the Teach Better Podcast Network. Get ready to be
2: inspired as we dive right into the conversation with today's guest. We are so glad to have our guest today, Jesse Stommel. He is currently a faculty member in the writing program at University of Denver. He is also co-founder of Hybrid Pedagogy, the Journal of Critical Digital Pedagogy and Digital Pedagogy Lab from 2015 to 2021. He has a PhD from University of Colorado Boulder. He is co-author of An Urgency of Teachers, The Work of Critical Digital Pedagogy. Jesse is a documentary filmmaker and teaches courses about pedagogy, film, digital studies, and composition. Jesse experiments relentlessly with learning interfaces, both digital and analog, and his research focuses on higher education pedagogy, critical digital pedagogy, and assessment. He's got a rascal pup, Emily, and a clever cat, Loki, and a badass daughter, Hazel, He's online at jessiestommel.com.
0: Good evening, Jesse. We are so glad that you're with us this evening. We would love it if you could tell us a little bit about yourself. What's your role, your location, anything interesting about your journey or interesting facts you'd like to share with our listeners?
3: Super glad to be with you tonight. Um, yeah, I'm Jesse Stommel. I have been teaching for almost 24 years in higher education. And I am currently teaching at the University of Denver in Denver, Colorado. And I also am the executive director of hybrid pedagogy, the journal of critical digital pedagogy. I also recently opened a toy and game store with my husband. So I also run a toy and game store in Littleton. And I have a six year old daughter named Hazel and she is a badass and keeps me on my toes at every turn.
1: Thank you so much. You've got a really interesting background, and most of the people that we talk to on this show are typically in the elementary, middle, and high school space, although we have had a couple others in higher ed. So we're really excited to hear your perspective. And I'd just like to start with, what does a learner-centered space look like, feel like, sound like to you?
3: yeah so i i guess i have a couple answers to that and one so if i think about my work in higher education and my background is in critical pedagogy so thinking about uh, folks like paulo Freire and bell hooks and thinking about the ways that students have agency in educational spaces and the way that institutions can often Um, threaten or impinge upon that agency and how do we create spaces in higher education where students are able to take ownership of their learning and able to direct their own learning in significant ways that for me is is super important and lately i've been doing a lot of research on grades and assessment and have um talked and present a lot on the concept of ungrading, thinking about how we ask hard questions of grades and standardized assessment in order to reimagine how learning happens. Because ultimately, I think that so much of what's happening in classrooms in both higher education and elementary and high school education is driven really by the assessment structures that we've created. And I think there's that grades as a system control so much of what happens in educational spaces. So how do we break down, ask hard questions, dismantle those systems in order to make space for students to thrive. And then the other answer to the question is that uh, as part of my work with Playforge, the toy and game store that I run, we do camps and classes for kids and adults and we have a new educational space called littleton learning lab which the which we call a one-room schoolhouse for ages five to 105 and so i found myself running and coordinating and creating over the last two years camps and evening classes for kids and really thinking about what is it what is possible in a space that's outside of traditional educational institutions? And what is it about a space like a toy and game store or a educational system, uh, educational center that isn't credentialed and isn't uh, giving out grades? What is it about those spaces that allow students to thrive? And I think uh, first and foremost, it's that the students love that we aren't architecturing the curriculum to death. The students love that when they show up, they that the entire camp or the entire class is really driven by their interest. So we don't decide in advance what the outcomes are going to be. We might have activities that we're doing and different projects that they're working on. But we really start from the very first conversations we have with the kids saying, why did? Why are you here? What do you want to get out of this week? And really let that drive the the the, the class and the curriculum so that it's really different every single time depending on what kids show up.
0: I love that so much, Jesse. The honestly, like this is something that I struggled with in the traditional space, with how to create a learning environment in a high school that allows for a lot of the things you just suggested, even though it was a school and even though it was an English class. And how, you know, how can we make it as authentic and as non-traditional as possible inside of the other restraints that I kind of had around me, which kind of brings me back to the our like follow-up question. You you spoke specifically about ungrading and I'm very familiar with the work that you do around that. I love your website. I love the different things that you post in that on that topic. What I'd love for you to do is talk to us a little bit more about assessment specifically at the higher ed level where you are and maybe even in this other project that you're working on as well like what does assessment look like what could it look like in these different spaces where learners are at the front of what we
3: do. Yeah, I think I want to take the second part first. Um partly because I'm a uh, eternal optimist so I want to start with what's possible. Um, and cause I find that so often we get caught up talking about all the barriers to doing this kind of work. And when I, the only reason that I continue to be in education and I continue te- teaching is because there's so much joy and possibility every day in the work, specifically the work that I do with students. And so the, I guess the second part of the question, like what's possible inside of those spaces, if I think about. I think about like an outcome, like an outcome for a specific class. The outcome being the thing that then we're going to assess. We're going to say, did we reach that outcome? So often, I think that the outcomes are so prescriptive and so predetermined in advance of even meeting the students that it sure there are ways to assess whether we meet those outcomes, but does it even really matter if we meet those outcomes? I guess is the thing that I would push on. And so, if I think about a traditional outcome, like, why aren't our outcomes something like today, I want to find out how my students are doing. And that somehow just finding out how they're doing and that how do you start, how do you start that? How do you start reaching that outcome by just sitting down with them, sitting at their level and saying, how are you all? What's going on for you? Like, what's going on in your lives? And, And how asking that question might lead to a conversation that takes you someplace you never could have expected going and takes you to that kind of moment in education that feels like an epiphany, a moment where we change our mind about things, a moment where we reimagine what it is and and how we're working together. And the other thing that I think is really critical there is that it's an outcome that depends upon the human relationships that we create in the space. It's not an outcome that any individual student could meet on their own. It's something that we can only meet in conversation with each other. And if I think then about traditional assessment, traditional modes of assessment in um, K through 12 and in higher education, they're, they're so built around this notion that we're gonna start each student in the same place and they're all going to end up in the same place by the end, and that if they don't all end up in the same place at the end, that that's somehow a deficit. We saw that a lot with the the sort of pivot back to business as usual um, in the midst of COVID-19, the sort of desire to get us back on track, quote unquote, where there was a lot of talk about things like learning loss. And the only reason I think we could talk about something like learning loss is because there was this expectation of exactly where everyone would be at a specific moment in time, rather than imagining that human beings and how they interact and how they learn is something dynamic and something that we can't predict in advance. And truthfully, what I found during the pandemic was, sure, we may not have learned exactly what we would have expected to learn in a given year of high school or a given year of college, but we learned Entirely different things that we could have never anticipated learning things that ultimately are nearly impossible to assess using traditional quantitative standardized metrics or rubrics
0: yeah I was I was just writing um, and as you were speaking Jesse um, so much of what you said resonates I hate the term learning loss because I just think it's really inauthentic to the real learning experience. There was a lot of learning that did happen during that time. It just didn't look like the objectives you spoke of at the beginning. Like, okay, maybe maybe young kids didn't learn their letter awareness the same way we're accustomed to them doing that if it's a younger age group, or maybe kids didn't read as much as some schools want them to read at the pace that they wanted them to read them. But I, I really don't believe that there was this this learning loss narrative just doesn't feel right.
3: And I and- think, if if anything, the, the, the thing that we're struggling with now is institutions trying to get back to quote unquote business as usual and trying to cram round pegs into square holes. And I think we're seeing more loss. Um, I don't know if I would say learning loss, just more loss right now, because we're not giving students the time to grieve, the time to come to terms with what has happened over the last three years, the time to figure out where they are now and where they wanna be, and definitely with teachers, the time to let teachers ask hard questions about what education is even for, and what kinds of relationships they wanna develop with their students, how they can find joy in their work again, and so I think right now I'm having, conversations with teachers and having the experience myself of one of the hardest times to be a teacher, one of the hardest times to be an educator, because so many of us are experiencing this kind of deep, um, lack of understanding of who we even are as educators and what we want to be and what kind of relationships we want to have and how we relate to our institutions, even as our institutions are expecting us to somehow magically re-become the teachers that we were just before 2020.
1: Yeah, as I'm listening to everything that you've been saying, one question that's really still in my mind is how do we determine what is really important to assess? Because it seems like there's a misalignment between the important things that the students care about and are learning and what we're measuring. And so how do we as teachers kind of like tease that out and figure out what we truly should be assessing?
3: Yeah, I mean, to me, I think the most important thing that we need to do is not answer that question until we're with the students, because we could all, the three of us, could come up with some really amazing things. And I bet we would come up with like four star things, four out of five star. We would come up with really good ideas, but I think we would come up with much better ideas if we had that conversation anew with each group of students that we had every time that we meet with them. Um, and that that it was something constantly under revision. I think just going into a group of students, I mean, if we think what's at the basis of assessment? Well, we start by thinking about what is it that we wanna learn? What is it that we want to have students learn? And then we think about, well, what kinds of things would we measure as success on the path towards learning those things? And that can be a lot of different things. For me, that wouldn't be one specific set of things. And Then the third thing would be, well, how are we going to actually measure whether or not we meet those markers of success? To me, better than predetermining that or asking those questions before we meet the students to just start class, I don't know, maybe on the first day, maybe not on the first day. It seems kind of like an intense conversation for the first day of a class, but within the first few weeks, sitting down with students and saying, why are we all here? What are we hoping, what are we hoping to get out of this class? Uh, where are we each at in our journey towards that learning? And then asking the question of each student, like, what would be a marker of success for you? What would be the point at which you would feel like you had got to a place that was new for you with this particular discipline or this particular set of skills? And, And that doesn't mean that we put that all on the students, because that would be a conversation, a conversation we have with them, alongside them. But it would be us pushing them and challenging them in conversation with them, not in advance of their showing up on the scene, which I think so much of our curriculum and so much of our assessment mechanisms are predetermined.
0: I I couldn't agree with you more, Jesse. Like The bottom line is, I know that when I invited students into the curriculum with me and I didn't just take what Um, what I had traditionally done in the space, the amount of connection and engagement that came was really exceptional in comparison to a traditional English classroom. Mm -hmm. And to that end, there's so much that you could do to personalize learning in that space in the secondary classroom that I think sometimes, you know, like, Kids who might be in elementary K to five might not have the vocabulary yet, but you could still have that conversation and teach them to have the vocabulary for which you want them to answer those questions. What I'm curious, though, is like, what are you seeing at the higher ed level now as a result of the last few years where we had this learning loss narrative happening K-12 right now? But what does that actually look like where you are?
3: You know, I'll give one example, and this is just one little snapshot or corner of higher education, because I don't necessarily want to speak for every institution or every, every mode of teaching or every teacher or every classroom, but I'll talk really just personally about my last uh, quarter of teaching. I taught online for fully online for the first time since um, since the school that I was teaching at reopened and I. Throughout my career, I've, t- I've spent sort of probably 40% of the time teaching online or teaching hybrid and maybe 60% of the time teaching fully face to face. So it's something that I've always done, partly because it helped me work with students and populations of students that I didn't have any other way to reach. You know, I taught soldiers stationed in Iraq, mothers in rural areas too far from a college in order to get their degree. And I really found that work rewarding and valuable and during the pandemic at the start of it of course we all pivoted to online and i i had been teaching online for 15 years at that point and so it wasn't that unusual to me i found that this last quarter i had one of the worst quarters of online teaching that i've ever had in my life and and i wouldn't say worst because there was something wrong with the students or something wrong with i mean the students were amazing uh And, but there was just something that was different. And I think what it was, was that the, that the, the pivot to online during the pandemic was handled so poorly that students didn't really even know what online learning was. They were conditioned to expect a very prescriptive set of what it might look like. And they were, they were essentially had such an experience of online learning that was rooted in kind of Paulo Freire's notion of the banking model of education, the, the notion that they were just going to have their brains filled up with information and that they were then going to regurgitate that information into some sort of standardized assessment. And, I th- and, and that obviously wasn't how all of them experienced online learning during the pandemic. But I think enough of them experienced it that way that they came into an online class thinking that an online class was just a stack of worksheets That they were going to complete and for me it had always come pretty easy it had always like come pretty easily for both me and the students i worked with for it to be more than that partly because they were defamiliarized with online learning enough that they didn't know exactly what to expect of it so they were more open to it being all manner of things and i guess what i found was that over the last several years education for them had become even more paint by numbers, even more cookie cutter. And it was hard to break them out of that. But then the other thing I would say is that who I was in that space was also different because I had been through the trauma of the last three years and was trying to find myself again as a teacher. And so the sort of collision of those things ended up making it really tough for me this last quarter.
1: Yeah, I think that your story will resonate with so many teachers, and I personally was in graduate school getting my master's in education online at the same time as I was learning to teach online, and I think had I not had such good mentors through the classes that I was taking, my online classes could have been a mess, so it was definitely a really challenging time, and um, hopefully we have learned to be more creative coming out of it. Um, so you've told us a lot about your learner-centered spaces, the classrooms that you've created and the communities that you've created. And now I'm wondering if you could give some advice or tips to our listeners who are trying to create a more learner-centered space themselves.
3: Yeah, you know, I have a, I, I cannot stand um, the notion of best practices, the, the sort of imagining that there's five things you could do tomorrow that would revolutionize your teaching. I push back on that a lot in my writing, and the reason I push back on it is because I think teaching is so deeply idiosyncratic. And I think that different teachers teach in different ways, in different disciplines, at different institutions, to different students, in different years, on different days. And so there isn't like a neat and tidy set of things that we can do, but I do have an answer to that, and one that I have um, sort of worked on because I often get answered, asked a version of that question. And for me, the number one thing that I respond which and maybe this will start as abstract, but I'll kind of put some, I'll kind of put some, um, some specific specificity to it -- is to start with, "Hello, how are you?" I think there are there's so much bureaucracy in education. There's so much that's about controlling student behavior and so much at institutions that's about controlling teacher behavior that we often fail to just find out who each other is. We fail to find out who our students are. We fail to let our students know who we are. And so start with, hello, how are you, might mean literally start your class with, hello, how are you? And not just oh we're fine and then okay let's move on, but oh you're fine like well what 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 have you been doing you know you so actually really having the conversation how are you. But I think it also means when we're talking about what where our teaching happens increasingly our teaching happens both in the classroom, but it also happens via a lot of documents. It happens in online portals. It happens in syllabi that are published in learning management systems weeks and weeks, if not months before we even meet the students that we're working with. And so how do we actually front our humanity in all of those spaces so that every time that we're interacting with students wherever we're doing it we're starting with hello how are you and that might mean making sure there's a cover letter on top of our syllabus that invites them to share who they are and share some bit about who we are and it also might mean in the learning management system making sure that they don't encounter a bunch of modules with information that they're going to be in some ways bludgeoned with over the course of the term, that it starts with a front page and that that front page has some introduction to the kinds of relationship that we're going to be build. And also one of the things that I often find is that this is not just a one-to-one relationship between students and the teacher, but also how do we create that moment for the students? So like if the first place that they're going to be is inside of a learning management system, then we need to make sure that they can see one another inside of that space almost immediately. So that it isn't just, hey, here's the syllabus, spend hours reading this and all of the various documents of the course and then jump into a discussion forum. But how do we make sure that on the front page of the course is both who we are, what kind of relationship we wanna have with them as teachers, but also who the people that they're learning with are. Making sure that fronting our own humanity their humanity, but also making sure that they're able to fr- front their humanity to one another.
0: I love that so much and totally agree. Um, the The kids need to see us, the, the learners need to see us as learners and as partners in the relationship of their learning. So any way that we could humanize the process ourselves and how we relate to each other, the culture we create in our room is definitely more important than any content that we're going to share at any given time. Um, Just because content is so readily available anyway, right now in so many different places, it's really more about how they get it and what they need to get. And us being acutely aware of those needs because of the relationships that we've built. So I just, I I love those tips that you gave Jesse and To that end, you know, like if you could shout out folks from your your network, who do you think listeners need to be aware of to help them on this journey to do more of the stuff you're talking about?
3: Um, You know, the first person that I'm going to point to is Sarah goldrick grab and Sarah goldrick Grabb has done work with uh, food and housing insecurity among college students. Her focus is on higher education policy. But I think that the things that she's working on are incredibly applicable because what she's interested in is seeing students as humans first and also thinking about a hierarchy that privileges Maslow over Bloom, so privileges students' basic needs over their pedagogical needs, and recognizing, I think, that basic needs are pedagogical needs. And so when we think about how we engage with our students and how we make sure that they're able to be present and we're able to be present with them, it starts by asking questions about, are we all eating sufficiently? Are we food insecure? Do we have a safe place to live? Do we have a safe place to do our work from the course? And how is our mental health? That question of hello, how are you is a question of mental health ultimately. And basically fronting mental health as a key uh, predecessor or precursor to learning. That it's not possible to learn unless we have our basic needs met. And so I think her work is super incredibly inspirational to me and just that notion of basic needs are pedagogical needs, I think is important for for everyone at all levels of education. And then the other person that I am in- incredibly inspired by is the work of Alfie Kohn. Alfie Kohn's work on grades has pushed me in so many ways over the years. I've already mentioned Paulo Freire, bell hooks. Those are also some of my biggest influences. But I think Alfie Kohn and Alfie Kohn's blog, his ability to just write a blog post that cuts right to the bone of some of these issues around assessment and in a way that doesn't get too deep into the weeds. He also is capable of getting into the weeds, but I love the way that he's able to just say things that make you go, oh yeah, that seems absolutely patently and fundamentally obvious.
1: Great. That is such a good list. Thank you. And we'll share that all of those people in the show notes with this episode. Um, and if people want to learn more about you or get in touch with you, what are the best ways that they can do that?
3: Yeah. I So my blog, jessiestommel.com, I'm not a prolific blogger. I'm the kind of writer who writes a lot in my head and then I put it on paper. It means that each of my blog posts ends up being kind of almost manifesto-like because I've been thinking about it and kind of obsessing about it for so long before it gets put on paper. Um, but it also means that each one kind of represents me as fully as I'm able to represent my thinking about teaching and learning at that particular moment. So jessiestommel.com. I've got lots of work recently about assessment and grades and ungrading, and that goes back um, for at least the last 10 or 15 years. Um, also lots on there about designing for care, pedagogies of care, uh, building community and online spaces, which are all things that I've been super interested in. The other um, places, so the journal that I launched, Hybrid Pedagogy, which is at hybridpedagogy.org, I have been publishing there since 2011. We have something like 500 uh, articles by over 300 different authors. We've published five book-length works. I think one on critical digital pedagogy, one on one called "An Urgency of Teachers," which is the co-authored book that I, I wrote. And um, and I guess that the last space is I would say that you could find me on Twitter, which used to be the place where I was frequently in the social media sphere. Um, Twitter is becoming increasingly um hostile to my uh personal health and well-being um but i am at jessifer on twitter i just signed up for threads at jessifer js i'm also on instagram at jessifer js who knows where i'll end up in the social media sphere but i like social media because it allows it allows me to have kind of face-to-face one-on-one conversations with people that i would never be able to talk to otherwise so hopefully we'll settle down there but you can also always email me at jesse at hybridpedagogy.org.
0: Thank you so much, Jesse. This has been a really awesome conversation that I think our listeners are really going to appreciate. Your perspective is unique and also such a, it's it's an important perspective to maintain as education kind of slowly, sadly slips back to traditional, remembering that we do in fact teach people and that humanness should be the thing that precedes everything else. So Thank you so much for your time. We appreciate you.
3: Thank you. Um, super great to talk to you.
2: Thank you for learning with us today. We hope you enjoyed the conversation as much as we did. If you'd
0: like any additional information from the show, check out the show notes. Learn more about Mastery Portfolio and how we support schools at MasteryPortfolio.com.
1: You can follow us on Twitter at masteryforall and on LinkedIn on our Mastery Portfolio page.
2: We'd love for you to engage with us. If you'd like to be a guest on the show or know someone who would be an inspiring guest, please fill out the survey found in the show notes. And we'd love your feedback.
1: Please write a review on your favorite podcasting app.